Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Don. How are you doing? Uh, depressed as always. Welcome to Uncertain Things, people who are hopefully not depressed. Mm. It's, if you're in New York, I hope you're enjoying the snow. But it's great. Not that we're discriminate against people who are. <laughs> you know, they're they're part. They're our key audience. Don't don't you know push them away. Today we have Nadav Eyal, recurring guest yes. and friend of the pod. He's an Israeli journalist, but covers the globe. Um, he's focused, you know, on everything from what happened in America with American populism, but also looks has looked abroad to Europe, to China. So he really brings an international perspective. From the outskirts of the American empire. As he, as he says it, yeah. We asked him to join us again because his book, Revolt, The Global Uprising Against Globalization. The Worldwide Uprising Against Globalization. The Worldwide Uprising Against Globalization is hitting the Anglosphere bookstores. The virtual bookshelves, yes. We we, uh, highly recommend you get yourself a little virtual copy. Um, and and we invited him again to celebrate and to argue with him a little bit to have some some public disagreement. Our previous conversation was mostly focused on the themes of his book, mm-hmm. which are populism or nationalism, as he would probably describe it. Right, and and the impact of those varying trends around the world of rejection mm-hmm. of a globalized society and, and the 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 growing trend towards. Insularity. Very related to our upcoming conversation with Martin Gurry, actually. It's a little teaser for that episode. Right. And and I think it's uh, very related to a lot of the things that we, we touch upon, because I think this is one of those big tectonic shifts yeah. that we are seeing around the world. And we're still completely clueless, or should I say uncertain, mm. about where everything is going in, in terms of how our, our new world order is going to look like. So this is what we covered last time. And if you want to go listen to it, it's the episode is called The Revolt is Justified. Mm. This time we found ourselves more in the ring of debating current affairs. We asked about coronavirus and the vaccine rollout especially as it uh, pertains to the role of journalists in covering this Mm -hmm. and the responsibility they have um, towards either transparency on one hand and trying to play the role of a social shepherd in times of emergency on the other. And that, unsurprisingly, took us to questions about censorship and the, the role of tech platforms in moderating information. As you can see, this is a topic that's been on our mind a lot. Mm -hmm. And then for for me, what was really, really interesting was to get Nadav's perspective on what's been happening internationally during the Trump years, Um, just because we've been so very, very distracted uh, about what's going on with American politics. It was really, really great to hear from him, you know, what what we've missed. Especially in trying to understand what the world is doing to fill the America shape vacuum that has grown during the Trump years, as we've discussed in our in our first conversation about populism, but also can or will the new Biden administration make a difference? Unlike our usual format, uh, we tried to keep this to a tight hour. So if you want more afterwards, you know, buy the book, go back to our first conversation uh, or follow Nadal Vial on all the on all the platforms. Yes, you should do that anyway. And mm-hmm. you should also subscribe to Uncertain Things if you haven't already. And follow us on on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever we are at UncertainPod, where we also um, answer to people who, who wish to uh, argue mm-hmm. or, or disagree with us. And, and Rate us on Apple. Give us a five-star review on Apple yes. because that really, really helps. Yes. And with that, here we welcome again Nadav Fial. Nadav, thank you for joining us again. Hello. I'm really glad to be here, Vanessa Atten. It's exciting because you're we're having this discussion because your book is about to be released. Last time we talked, it was uh, still in the process of translation, and now it is hitting the uh, digital bookstores because bookstores don't exist anymore. <laughs> that's that's really unfortunate for me to publish a book in this time, but I'm 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 so happy it's it's coming out anyway. So can you read it? Read the title for the for the people who aren't as fortunate to. Yes, yes. Uh, revolt the the revolt the worldwide uprising against globalization. It's by uh, Echo Harper Collins, and it has some uh, nice blurbs on the back from uh, Yuval Noah Harari and from uh, Daniel Godis. And we're hoping to get some uh, many more blurbs mm-hmm. as we <laughs> we go along. But this is coming out uh, this week. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's already everywhere, you know, in Amazon and 
all the other places that you can buy. It, it's exciting, and we we got into a, we did an in depth tour of of some of the themes of the book of the revolt in our in our uh, previous interview with you, mm-hmm. which I think we called it the the revolt is justified, where we got into the social economic conditions of the rise of populisms and the the, the moral ambiguity surrounding it, and even the journalistic aspects of covering that. And I recommend people. Go to that it's, it's actually one of our um, uh, most listened to interviews so people ap- appreciated that talk mm-hmm. yes yes that's <laughs> in in that uh, uh, measure also get the book so support your your authors and journalists uh, but but we will try to pick up where we stopped uh, last time the world did change mm. in in the intervening months but before we get there I, I want to ask you um, just how a how are you feeling about this how is it to get your book on the on the international shelves and also you've changed you made a bit of a career change uh, recently so if you I, I'd love to hear about that okay so uh, the book is coming out and it's very exciting because it's it's coming out in many places at once mm. uh, so I'm uh, talking with With uh, uh, Romania one day so it already came out in Romania and I'm doing uh, an interview for what was described to me as the New Yorker of Poland <laughs> <laughs> which which I don't know I don't know it sounds great as far as I'm concerned and uh, uh, the that's I mean. <laughs> I, yeah. there was a there was a New Yorker of uh Budapest I remember Vanessa we talked oh, about everyone that, which, has which, their which, own oh, New Yorker <laughs> well, right, no, yeah. but specifically that one got I remember shut down by Orban which oh, I, as I of course as I remember it it's a classic Orban <laughs> that, that that makes it a, a true New Yorker right so uh, <laughs> that that's exactly um so um and also I go through you know book covers right now from Taiwan from Korea. Uh, so it's it's really exciting and and actually I cannot absorb it I I, I really cannot understand that it's it's really happening mm. uh, and one of the reasons I can't fully comprehend it is because I'm not going anywhere <laughs> although right. I'm publishing a book in many countries <laughs> I'm not going anywhere and the best I can do is give interviews about the book to to local media um, it's going to come out in some countries in Western Europe and Later, it's going to come out for instance in uh, in Italy in in two weeks it's uh, already out it was out in the beginning of 2020 in Germany um, and I, I I I tried to think all the time about how reality corresponds with the theme of the book and uh, of course my worry as, as a writer is that Did I get it right? Is, mm-hmm. is it still relevant? Is it relevant for people's lives? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sort of banking in the book uh, on uh, this, this era to be defined by, by change. Uh, and sometimes I wonder if uh, COVID-19 means that people will uh, redraw themselves to some sort of a status quo. Uh, so, so I keep asking myself these questions. I, wait, I stay up at night. You know asking hmm is, is this still do I stand behind my theme and and my answer is is yes uh, at least for now but as a journalist uh, this is what I do so uh, I, I need always to be worried also about my work and uh, we tend to be worried that you probably know this feeling when you publish a big story uh, that you you're sure and you know it's certain but You still stay up at night saying, "What if, what if?" Um, uh, so this is what it feels when you publish a book like this, and this is how I truly feel. This is frankly uh, speaking how I feel. Uh, I did make a career move. I uh, am still on TV, but I'm sort of a contributor, uh, a senior commentator for Channel 13, but my main work is Israeli now- Channel 13. Yes, it's, it's a broadcast channel. It's one of two. It, it says Channel 13, but we don't have other 12 <laughs> uh, broadcast channels in Israel. We have just two, uh, 12 and 13. And I, my main job right now is to write. I write for Yediot HaKonot, which is Israel's probably most, uh, largest circulated newspaper. I write for its weekend edition. I write a column. It usually deals with politics, both domestic and international. And naturally with with covid 19 so for instance this weekend I had an interview with the former director general of the health ministry and he was proposing that we have a zero covid policy installed in Israel and that made a bit of a row 
hmm. uh, because it's the first time that a proposal like that was made. So that would be my sort of my day job. Um, the the way we ended the previous talk was talking a lot about the role of journalism and the responsibility um, the journalists have in the way that they cover a story in terms of tone, their their moral perspective. And for some context, we had that conversation, I believe, in maybe like late summer, early fall. And it was kind of a, a moment where a lot of journalists were being called to kind of take more perhaps moral or at least more emotional stances in the way that they cover um, the the events that were happening in the U.S. at the time. But by the time we publish this, I think we will already have published our conversation with Matt Welch, who also has a lot of thoughts on this issue. Mm-hmm. I think a very different perspective. Things have really changed in the past, like, uh, I'd say four or five months since we talked in, in many regards. But I think specifically COVID-19 and the, the, the rollout of vaccines really pushed the question of the responsibility of journalists to create, on one hand, a, a transparently available set of information about you know, what, the, what the system is, what the options are, what the risks are. While on the other hand, I, I, I'd say have a, at least for some journalists, felt that the responsibility is to be in the, you know, the service of the rollout and making sure that, that, that people actually get vaccinated. And I think there's a, there's a clear tension there. Vanessa and I, in our, in our prep talk, we started calling it the, um, the, the what, what would you decide on? The, the, the toilet, toilet paper, paper dilemma. dilemma. <laughs> the toilet paper dilemma. Why is that? Because, so <laughs> early in early in the pandemic, if you remember, Dr. Fauci mm-hmm. um, had his famous his his big lie, which was that masks do not prevent transmission, which was something that he, I think, openly admitted later on to have lied about in order to preserve protective gear for uh, uh, frontline workers, essential workers, yeah. And, and yeah, and healthcare workers. The dilemma there is obviously you want to make sure that your essential workers are protected, knowing that there's a dearth. On the other hand, you're risking the long-term uh, integrity or the long-term public trust in in this institution. You're you're potentially eroding the long-term public trust in mm-hmm. uh, you as an as an authority. So on one hand, you want to say. Of course, preserve this trust. Treat people like adults, and they'll do the right thing. You can you can responsibly tell them masks are important, but be careful. We have a supply problem, so don't overshop. But on the other hand, we saw what happened with toilet paper in the United States during the first two weeks that the pandemic started hitting our shores. Basically, all across America, one of the richest countries in the world, you couldn't find toilet paper. <laughs> like like in a second, because people were hoarding toilet paper. So people aren't that intelligent, people aren't that rational. So no matter how much you're gonna ask them to conserve and be responsible, they will act like crazy hoarders if they can. And how does it parallel to to vaccine? So you're reporting from Israel where the vaccine is getting rolled out at a speed that is dazzling for the rest of the world and is certainly a source of envy for somebody living in New York like me. But from conversations I've had with people in Israel, some, at least a certain minority, is worried that maybe it's almost too hasty, with not enough time given to assess the risks, while already discussing potential sanctions against people who don't get vaccinated. And we know that there are some risks. We're only beginning to get a picture of the adverse reactions. We, are, we, we, we know that it's, it's a new technology and it's a new vaccine that only had so much time to be tested before it had to be uh, pushed out due to the emergency. So some concern is legitimate. And for some people, there is a, a feeling that the, the, the risk is not adequately communicated or even underplayed. So my assumption was that there, there could be some collective subconscious attempt to underplay the risk because of the urgency of actually getting everybody vaccinated which is understandable, but opens up its own kind of Fauci toilet paper dilemma. So what are your thoughts about this? Uh, First of all, it's something that we deal with all the time. And it's funny that we are having this discussion this evening because in the last three days, I've been uh, viciously attacked online. Of course, you're always viciously attacked online Hmm. when it's online. (laughs) You're not gently attacked online. (laughs) Yes, nobody nobody says, oh, it's an understatement. Let me be... (laughs) Let me be gentle because it's Facebook. Um, <laughs> but basically, I, I was attacked by the anti-vaxxers because I was part of uh, a roundtable that uh, 
but the INSS did. The INSS is, is, is a, an important Israeli think tank. And they dealt with the question, how do we persuade people to get vaccinated? And my opening remarks were, I'm not getting uh, people to, to go and have the vaccine. It's not my job. I, I'm not going to persuade people. I'm not going to write articles, go and get yourself vaccinated. I'm not going to even tell people that I got vaccinated. And I did, by the way, first shot. Uh, I'm not going to put you know, a picture of myself on my personal Twitter account saying I got vaccinated. And they were sort of dumbstruck because they said, why? And, and I said, because people need to, to know that I'm, as a journalist, I will report if there are problems with the vaccine. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to hide anything because of uh, policy issues. It's just not my job. And uh, afterwards, towards the end of that uh, roundtable, they asked me what's going to happen and what do I think, what will be the number of Israelis that will actually get vaccinated? And that was more than a month ago. And what I said, and that actually happened, is that we'll see the stronger layers of Israeli society getting themselves vaccinated. And it, it will look like everyone is getting vaccinated. And then we'll hit, you know, the wall with people who won't do that. And most probably with the same segments of society that actually get ill more often mm. with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, and that happened. And then I said, and what's going to happen is that they, they will see that disease um, and infection rates are going down. So hospitalized cases are going down if the vaccine works as, as advertised by the FDA and Pfizer. And when they see that, younger people will not get vaccinated because why should you? Uh, at any rate, you know, the chances of a young person to get to hospital if he's healthy with COVID-19 are, are really very, very slim. At least in Israel, they are. It's almost impossible to get to hospital and to die. It's, it's, it, chances are really slim. And, and then what will happen is that people will stop getting vaccinated and then we'll see another wave of infections. And we, we, need, to, we need to stop that. These last words, <laughs> we need to stop that, became a banner for the anti-vexers. Uh, so my whole th theme was, I'm a journalist, I'm not going to call upon... <laughs> uh, when I said we need to stop that, I meant we need to stop the other wave and people rushing to, vac uh, to vaccinate themselves because they see another wave and they want to get vaccinated and they didn't understand that there would be another wave. I didn't mean that as with the we, media, the cabal of the Illuminati trying <laughs> to push the Pfizer vaccines in order to get Bill Gates microchips installed in our arms, <laughs> in our minds, which of course is what they think. And in Israel, and it's really interesting, this ha somehow is connected actually not only with French right-wing, French ultra-Orthodox, but also with not-so-fringe left-wing. Mm. So you will have friends on your, you know, Facebook feed that will go, the whole vaccination thing is just uh, a conspiracy of Netanyahu or something like that. And interesting case study about how fake news and conspiracy theories and anti-vaxxers can have a coalition with the liberal left wing, the Enlightenment values progress camp, which I'm supposed to be part of. And I'm uh, just because I'm not even saying go vaccinate yourself. I'm just saying, for instance, there was a day in Facebook just a week ago, I wrote one line and the line was that Clalit, which is the biggest healthcare provider in Israel, probably a monopoly, is opening vaccinations for 40 plus year old. That's it. That was the line. It's a sentence. And I wrote it down. Sometimes I do. It was informative. And it, it was just a shitstorm of, I, you know, I stopped blocking because I couldn't even block them. <laughs> I had hundreds or maybe thousands of wow. comments there. Um, 
it became an issue on Twitter. People were referring because what, they to felt that like you were you were pushing people to vaccinate. They felt like this is this is not your job. Yes, or- you're you're part of the genocidal scheme. Uh, you will be indicted for crimes against humanity. Okay, and I I that was a, an informative sentence, and we do that in the press, <laughs> saying <laughs> you know the healthcare provider is allowing people if they want to get vaccinated, they can go ahead and do that. Um, so it's a tough, it's, it's a tough sport, but to answer your question, no, I don't think we should manipulate people. And when I say we, I mean, we, the press, I don't think that we should, um, make these kind of calculations because if journalists would start doing those, people won't trust them. So when we hear about, uh, people having, um, a bell fallacy, uh, some sort of uh, a reaction, a severe reaction to the vaccine. We should report that. And we should report everything because, indeed, you know, vaccines are rolled out really quickly. As far as I know, as far as the FDA is, is saying, they didn't, you know, uh, round any sort of uh, process during the, the trials of the vaccines. They insist that this was done as every other vaccine. And I believe them on the one hand. On the other hand, they had more time because of red tape, because of other reasons. They had more time in other vaccines. And we should really, you know, look, be on the lookout for anything that might be peculiar and not allow government uh, or ministries uh, tell us, no, no, it's fine. Everything is just great. And we're not going to do that. But on the other hand, right now, uh, vaccines seem really very safe uh and and there's a lot of conspiracy and fake news going out over the, you know out there on social networks for instance that mrna vaccines were never tested for safety before it's just fake news um their main problem was was efficacy in the past um they simply didn't work uh, the problem wasn't safety they've been checked for safety for the last tw- uh, 20 years uh, mm-hmm. the point about them I just had an interview. I did a Zoom thing with a professor, Lior Zangi, from Mount Sinai. And he's an Israeli. And he's actually the first person to shoot mice with mRNA uh, man-made molecules uh, with an attempt to, to lead to a change. So Moderna founders and him were in the same group, so to speak. And he, he's, he's trying to do that to cure heart disease. And he said to me, look, the, the main issue about mRNA was always that it's like water because the main problem was just to keep it stable. So it will last when you shoot it to, uh, to an animal. And that was the main problem. The main problem wasn't safety. Uh, hmm. So this is just one example of what we're dealing with on a daily basis. And then if you deal with this on a daily basis, it might seem like a campaign, but it's not. But it's curious because... It- <laughs> your your previous story an example shows you know here's what i think that an ethical journalist here's how i think they should behave and i'm going to endeavor to behave in this way yeah. and it was absolutely um disregarded like it didn't even matter that you were going through the motions of trying to do what journalists must must do which is hopefully be be skeptical be objective report the facts and it absolutely got turned around and twisted anyway so there there could be a question of okay we can talk you know and from here until tuesday about the responsibility of the journalist but what's the responsibility of i mean fill in the blank is it like individuals is it the tech platforms like clearly there's another there are more hurdles to be to be oh, oh it's the tech over. platforms it's the tech platforms <laughs> yeah i oh yeah oh yeah okay <laughs> I, i think i think that we really had enough um you know facebook has committed itself to take off a uh, post it this is not a legal thing this is their community rules, they said they will take off uh, posts which uh, spread lies and disinformation about the vaccines and about vaccination. Uh, this is their statement about their own policy, and they're not following it. And I have something really important to say about that, which I, I simply don't have the time to write the op-ad for, 
to American press. And what I have to say, maybe I, 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 I started talking with Indian journalists and Pakistani journalists about writing it together, is that Facebook doesn't give a crap on mm. countries outside of the US. Mm -hmm. They just don't. They don't. Uh, I see this in Israel. I ask them for data, for instance. How many posts did you take down according to your own policy? I'm not saying that I, uh, you know, naturally uh, support that. But this is your policy. We're, mm -hmm. we're having, you know, a phenomenon in Israel that people in their profile picture, <laughs> they have a yellow star, like a Holocaust yellow star, saying the, the pandemic is fake and I'm not getting vaccinated and are talking about this as annihilation. And they're using... Wait, wait, they're the Jews in this metaphor? They're the lamb being led to slaughter? Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. Jeez. The lambs. Do you know the lamb issue in, in the conspiracy theories? Yeah. yeah. You're the lambs. And... And they're using the yellow star from the Holocaust in their profile picture. How difficult is it to Facebook to monitor? <laughs> and it's the same thing, you know, it's, it's the, they're using the same kind of uh, uh, internet inhibitor in order to get that picture like that. How difficult is it for them to follow their policy? And the answer is that it's not difficult for them at all. They just don't care about us in the provinces of the empire. They just don't care how much fake news is here because they don't have political risk here. Now, I, I, I'm willing, and I, I, I wrote that, okay, in Hebrew, and I, I went to Facebook to speak with them, and I showed them that not only do they not care, they actually make money from advertising anti-vexers during COVID-19 on COVID-19 in the last few weeks in Israel. It's on Facebook library. You can see the, those ads there. And it, it, it's not even coded. Oh, it's slightly coded. And they just didn't have a comment for me because they don't, don't care. This is, as a journalist, right. this is my op-ad opinion, okay? It's my right. actual opinion, you know, right. to protect myself from any <laughs> Facebook claim, you know? But my opinion is that they don't care. And I think that uh, for them... You know, that's a great thing about not being monetized in the first place, that we're not risking demonetization <laughs> by anyone. Although we are on Facebook, so who knows? It will get shut down. Uh, right. No, 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 no. They don't. be throttled. <laughs> From what I see, what I write about Facebook and Facebook, they don't do that. But um, I, I'm, I'm really amazed by how crucial this time is. So people need to take into account that there are risks and everybody needs to make their own decision about getting vaccinated. And my answer to a, an 18 years old is not the same answer as to a 65 year old. Okay. Yeah. About risks. And that's fine. But this is a window. And in this window, every charlatan anti-vexer liar is out there selling his stuff online. And these companies are simply not doing enough. They're not yeah. doing enough in order just to take out the lies which have led us to 2016, which have built, you know, this era to a large extent. And, and according to their own stated policy and perceived goals, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. I don't want to turn it into a whole discussion because there's so much more we want to talk about with you, but... I, I do want to register my discomfort with this the social dilemma perspective of the 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 role of big tech in, in all of this. To be clear, what I'm not skeptical of is just how powerful these modes of communications are and how potentially destabilizing they are for society. In fact, we have a whole conversation about this yeah. coming up. My skepticism is, do we really trust tech companies to be the arbiters of truth and journalism? I'm not sure that I prefer Mark Zuckerberg's direct touch in sorting out content over the uh, uh, anarchy of disinformation. I, I don't know. I don't have a firm opinion about this, but I'm just uncomfortable with thinking of Silicon Valley, with entrusting Silicon Valley with this job. A, because I don't think they'll do a good job. 
I don't think they want to, and and I don't think they, I don't trust their moral compass in handling this. But B, because I also don't think that this has the one-to-one correlation that people think uh, with with the spread of disinformation. I, I remember after. Uh, 2016, I worked at a place in, in news and I was doing a report about the involvement in Facebook in, in getting people uh, to vote for Trump and, and Russian disinformation campaigns. And despite the thesis that was being promulgated by the outlet that hired me, my own reporting led me to conclude that there was really little to no effect. The, the impact was absolutely insignificant. Yes, there were were a couple dozen people around the country who attended events created by Russian trolls. Oh my God, that this did not tilt the election, and and to say that it did shows so so much disrespect for for Trump voters who really did just vote for him because whatever reasons. As if you couldn't make that decision without being manipulated from Moscow and, and because of Facebook. It, uh, I remember all the, the pitchforky attempts to pin Trump's victory on Facebook, to blame Facebook for getting Trump elected. It was so bizarre and obsessive. And, and now you're seeing the same scapegoating happening uh, from the right. And it's, 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 it's this weird, creepy, bipartisan fetish <laughs> to, to, to hate on social media. And I hate social media as a user. And there are very real problems that are the result of, of the way this is changing our, our interactions. But that's not it. And, and you're not going to get better results by, by having them b- b- monitor more content. The only thing that it's going the only thing that are going to be successful at is, is, is antagonizing users who will just find their, their new um, um, hive of, of hate and disinformation. And it just might be on, on Russian servers instead of American. So you, you thought, for instance, you thought that uh, Trump should have stayed online, right? They should have made. Oddly enough, I'm actually more agnostic about this because he was president at the time and he had more power. Uh, you know, a lot of people said, oh, double standard, Twitter kicks Trump off but keeps uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and, and, the, and the Chinese Communist Party. No, I think they should have just kicked all of them out. But with uh, cases like uh, uh, Amazon kicking Parley or Parler or whatever out of its servers, that's, that's a little more, more icky. I don't want uh, I don't want the Silicon Valley to to set the stage for our freedom of speech. Um, I you know it's our effective freedom of speech, right? It's not right, uh, the constitutional freedom of speech. It's not legal because they are corporations and they can allow or not allow people on their uh, realms because of you know their commercial interests and. It, Right, it's not the First Amendment issue for sure. Their First Amendment have a, the right to kick out whoever they want. They can decide we only allow people who who are sexually attracted to horses to be yeah. on our I, platforms. I, if I, they I'm want. not sure about that specifically, not because of the horses or not, but because of uh, you know not discriminating against. For instance, in in, mm. in Israel, that would be deemed illegal. In in the US, I don't know, but um, but basically, I think there's more latitude for corporations in in America for to to decide their own audience. But, yeah, I, yeah, I will. So, but in but the bottom line is that they made a commitment to that policy, and um, as long as they have that commitment and they do not employ it, it's a PR stunt. That's that's basically what I'm saying. So I'm not delving into the issue of. Mm. What is the extent of their publisher responsibility to what is on online? But I'll have to tell mm-hmm. you that right now with what's happening, I would want to see more interference in the sense, uh, you know, that we, we have had uh, in the past with publishers. I think that they are killing publishing everywhere. They're killing TV. They're killing, you know, newspapers. Uh, assuming no responsibility for stuff published unless it's, um, you know, manslaughter, basically. Or this was their policy. They have changed their policy because of political pressure and they have another policy. Now they should live up to that. And as long as they are so big, I can demand them, you know, a great many things. And uh, to your question, and I know that in America that will be considered blasphemous, but uh, it's really possible. So people might say, maybe the corporation shouldn't do that. 
maybe democracy should. You know, maybe people should say, yes, if you have, you, if you own a social network, that means that you're a publisher and that's, that's the law of the land. And then you, you're responsible for stuff to, to an extent, you're responsible for stuff that is actually there. But then people will say, you're crazy. I don't want the government, you know, to tackle right. with my freedom of speech hmm. issues. And I can understand that. But in other countries, for instance, Europe, and I think Germany is, is a democracy today. Uh, not less uh, so than than the U.S. Uh, you know, the government, the police, basically calls people that leave racist comments on Facebook, and they get a phone call from the local <laughs> police branch saying, "Oh, racism is not legal in this country. There is no first amendment, you know, uh, that says that you can be racist online or anything like that. You can go to jail uh, in Germany." Somehow they manage to keep their democracy live and kicking. You know, uh, it's it's a different model, and I I think it's a more careful model uh, than uh, just just allowing lies to spread. There. I remember that as a funny moment after Trump got kicked off Twitter. Angela Merkel came out with a statement condemning uh, 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 Twitter's decision, and I was like, wait, 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 what? Like Germany has a lot less legal um, uh, protections for yeah. for freedom of speech. They have much stricter libel laws and have laws against hate speech. But the thing is that in in Europe, the the norms around free speech are are the opposite of what they are here. They expect the state to regulate speech, not the corporations. I I, th- I think it's much more logical that if we well, we sort of expect you know limitations on freedom of speech, it doesn't matter. We would rather have them not from stockholders but from representatives of I don't know because you can you can create another company and compete with Facebook. You cannot compete with the state. So once the state draws the line somewhere that you're not that, that, that is you think is bad, is stupid, which states often do, then what do you do? You have no recourse you, at you that point. You go to an election. It's, it's a much much stronger recourse than uh, sure, but then uh, but, but, that's, but that's exactly where you need speech the most when you're trying to talk about, you know, how fucked up the person in power is. Imagine Trump mm. having the power to decide what counts as free speech. He would have decimated the New York Times before the elections. Just, just think what Orban does in Hungary. But okay, enough of that. Where we agree completely is social media can be insanely hypocritical when it comes to actually implementing their own uh, standards. Last week, I interviewed a journalist from Nairobi. She's very active in promoting internet freedom across Africa. And she gets into a lot of fights with Facebook trying to to hold them true to their own standards. And just recently, she met with executives and told them, look, you say that you're going to take down um, incitement. There's a war going on in Ethiopia, and there are videos being shared on your platform that aren't just a call for violence, but actually show militia people telling their followers which neighborhoods they should go to in order to find the right ethnic minorities to purge. It's literally a blueprint for genocide that's being shared on Facebook. And what did the executives say? They said, well, our algorithms don't understand your language, oh so we can't really find it. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Which I think to Nadav's earlier point, it's like there is, Facebook has no incentive to, to fix this problem outside of the US because it's only in that's where they're getting their feet put to the fire, really, in a meaningful way for them, for their bottom line. Yeah, so that's crazy. Um, I'm going to use this to jump and discuss the rest of the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> with the Biden administration now in office, the, the world has changed since, since last we spoke. Last time we talked a lot about international relations, and you described the Trump administration as amateur hour. How does Biden coming into office change things internationally? Well, everything's changed uh, and nothing yet. So uh, this, is a, this is such a dramatic change, not only because he was kicked out, but because he was replaced by, by Biden. And what I mean by that is that I know that in the US, it sometimes doesn't seem like that. But to the world, the message is that this is a continuation of the Obama administration. And if you look at the nominations he made, also vis-a-vis the Middle East, but in, in many other aspects, 
as far as the world is concerned, what America is saying is we had this uh, kind of, uh, you know, we flipped for four years and now we're back and we're back where we were. And that's, you know, the last year of Obama. And the world is not going to see all the subtleties between the Biden types and the Obama types. They're gonna, not going to discuss, you know, why isn't Ben Rhodes in a senior position in the administration and Tony Blinken is. He's too busy podcasting. Exactly. Uh, they, they don't care. Uh, what, what I see both in Middle Eastern capitals but also in other places is that they look at the U.S. They, you know, we saw the, the attack on Capitol Hill. Nobody cares about impeachment. What that attack meant was that what, what it signaled is weakness. Mm. It signaled decay. Mm-hmm. It signaled that the revolt, as I labeled in the book, is still here, very much here. Yeah. You know, months after Biden won, it's still there. Now, again, nobody will go into the trouble of actually arguing, well, it was a mob. There was a specific security problem there on Capitol Hill. It will probably never happen again the way you did. It wasn't a real attempt of power power grab. Uh, It was more of a, a mob incited during a demonstration that took control without an actual plan. These kind of details are really not important. What's important is the picture. Mm. And I, I just had that conversation. Uh, we were on air on the Biden inauguration and someone else on air, another commentator said, uh, you know, this is just amazing that we've seen the Capitol ransacked. And that was the, mo- the strongest thing she had to say on the evening of Biden getting you know, sworn in. And I think this is not going to go away on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, Biden is known and that old Washington, that swamp, as uh, Trump would have put it, is predictable, is trustworthy as far as the world is concerned. Uh, The first actions and that first speech and briefing of, uh, of Tony Blinken was really important to show where America is. Also, vis-a-vis China, all that conspiracy theory that Biden is uh, is pro-China, which has infiltrated everywhere in the world, at least uh, Israeli press, including a quality newspaper. So he made clear where America stands today, in front of Russia, in front of China, and it's the old world back to 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 an extent. On the other hand, nobody was waiting for the U.S. I just saw uh, a, Euro- the U- a European think tank, I think uh, their name is ECF, they did a poll or study within European nations about what do they think is going to happen in 10 years' time. Is China going to be stronger than the U.S.? And most countries in Western and Southern Europe, I mean France, Italy, Portugal, they thought China is going to be much stronger than the U.S., and it's the UK, the Scandinavians and Germany that were betting on the US to be stronger than China in 10 years. But when you mm. ask all Europeans about do you, where do you stand? That was really amazing. Most of them said, if there's a conflict, we're neutral. We're, we're out of this game. Wow. We're out of this game. And that was true for every European country, including Eastern Europe. So the best country for the US was Poland and they had they they were polling 50% neutral and uh, <laughs> and and some of them of course were saying we're supporting China no oh god and and that's not 5% or something like that so and that means that NATO as we know it and the whole idea that there is a west uh crumbled during the Trump years and because of that it seems like Biden's going to have an easy task but what happened in Washington didn't stay in Washington. It never stays in Washington. That's, that's a sentence from an notepad I'm writing right now. It, it never stays in Washington. And what Trump did was to echo, and that echo remains in places still ruled by the Netanyahu's and the Bolsonaro's of the world. 
And believe me when I'm telling you, as someone still ruled by the Netanyahu's and Bolsonaro's of the world, and I'm not saying they're the same, and I'm not saying they're, they're Trump, this is not going to go away. The fact that America, you know, suddenly got a shot of reality and went to elect Joe Biden, which wouldn't have been elected most probably if we didn't have COVID-19, most probably. That doesn't mean that this is how the world is going to react to this crisis. And it also doesn't mean that it's going to be sustainable. You know, I'm starting to see what's happening in the discussion within the U.S. about how many vaccinations actually are we going to have. And when the Biden team was saying 100 million in 100 days, uh, was, was it attractive enough? Was it ambitious enough? Uh, and, and why isn't it more? And of course, President Biden is saying we can't change the trajectory of the pandemic in the next several months. And he said that I, I had to read that few times to, to say maybe, I, maybe it's out of context. Maybe I didn't understand the context there. And what I saw there was a decision by the White House to install that sentence within the speech. And just as a message, you know. To manage expectations. Yes, yes, yes. Just people will pick it up, but it was buried <laughs> in the speech. And I don't, I don't even know what it means. What does it mean? The trajectory of the pandemic can be changed in the next several, several months. You said you will change it from day one. So what, what does it mean for the ordinary American? Um, and, and the truth is that we're going really with the British variant, we're going to, to probably to darker days, at least uh, in places that are not yet completely dominated by the British variant. And that short of reality of rational discourse, uh, that's great. And I sympathize with people choosing it and I hope it wins. Uh, and I'm rooting for that to win, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. I was going to ask about China. Um... Because you said that a lot of European nations, for example, have, you know, the, the last four years, the U.S. reputation has taken a severe hit in terms mm. of what, not just how much Europe kind of, I suppose, trusts this country, but also its potential power moving forward. Since we've been really distracted, our eyes have been here. They have not been abroad. I'm curious, to what extent has China taken advantage of that situation and 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 built up some sort of credibility with the rest of the world in order to be able to maneuver and to 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 be in the position where people trust uh, their rise more than than our um, maintenance? <laughs> uh, I think Vanessa, Vanessa, this is the the optimist side. They they didn't. Huh. You know, it, uh, China is not better off today internationally than it was four years ago in terms of international mm -hmm. trust. They are under heavy suspicion, not only on, in Western Europe, but also in Africa. They're losing some of their dominance because of them being so aggressive. President Xi's authoritarian style and modern authoritarian style is pushing away uh, the sort of global elites that in the past had no problem going to bed with China. And we're seeing reactions both with corporations and others uh, uh, towards China. And I think this would, would increase. So to a large extent, the Chinese didn't do what they needed to do. And that was to give them at least the impression of reform, mm. um, the impression of improving human rights. It's exactly the opposite. They use these years in order, like many other authoritarian regimes, in order to basically say, oh, you're not washing, you know, now we're going to steal from the cookie jar. Mm. That's the cookie jar of, of, of human rights and democracy. And we're seeing these demonstrations, uh, we're talking now, and we're seeing the demonstrations in Russia, for instance, and people are demonstrating in Belarus in sub-freezing levels. It's amazing. Uh, and to an extent, that gives a window of opportunity for liberals again because of the Biden administration and because these places were not smart enough to reform and change, or at least give, again, the impression of changing uh, on those Trump years, because he was so terrible and everybody was discussing him. And mm. they thought that this gives them uh, an allowance 
of, of acting the way they did. And that was, of course, a mistake. Uh, they were sort of presuming that America is not going to come back, or mm. at least it's not going to come back the same way. Uh, it's not true for everyone. For instance, the Iranians, they thought Trump is going to be a fluke of history, and they were right. The Palestinians thought that too. And they took risks, both the Iranians and the Palestinians. But many other regimes didn't. And I think oh, that... What kind of for, risks? Oh, uh, the Palestinians basically shut out the, the US. The, the, the Amer think about the Palestinians. They don't have a state. They're poor. They don't have allies in the Arab world anymore, almost, because many of these countries are allies of Israel right now. And although the Trump administration employed huge pressure on them, to go back to negotiations after recognizing, you know, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, moving the embassy, acknowledging the possibility of Israel to annex part of the West Bank and annex the, the Golan Heights, even though they did that, the Palestinians just resisted. And what's interesting about that is that their mainstream resistance was not by violence. Their mainstream resistance was just by saying no. And, and, and it, it was a very, for them, in their national struggle, it's going to be a heroic phase of these years of the Trump administration. I'm just opening a window for, for American listeners, which might not know how this, these four years were sort of very different to people around the world. So for, for right. Palestinians, they will remember those four years. In those four years that they did what's labeled in Arab Palestinian Sumud, they um, held to the ground. They mm. didn't move. They, they were not pressured to go. And the PA, which was always considered to be a puppet of... The Palestinian Israel, Authority. Yeah, the Palestinian Authority, of uh, a puppet of Israel and... and the U.S. and was created by the U.S. in the Oslo Accords. Actually, uh, the PA said no, and Abu Mazen, you know, that elderly leader, that uncharismatic leader that replaced Yasser Arafat, said, "I'm not going to have, you know, one conversation with these people." That's amazing, you know, for people who don't have a country, and and are are sidelined uh, by Israel signing peace accords. <laughs> with Arab countries in the Gulf. So this is just one angle. The Iranians, on their part, said, okay, you want to break that agreement? We're not going to go into a negotiation about a new agreement. The Trump administration, Trump himself, wanted to meet with the Iranians, as he did with Kim Jong-un. He wanted to do so. Okay, there were many, many elements within the American administration that tried to prevent that and succeeded in preventing that. But he really wanted to go through that charade. And the Iranians were not willing to go through the charade. They wanted, you know, to know what they're going into. And also they're really smart, savvy negotiators. And that's that's very true for the Iranians. And they said, no, he's gonna be, you know, he's gonna be thrown out of office, which he did, and then we're going to have negotiations with a new American administration about the future. And until then, what we're gonna do is we're going to enrich uranium like hell. And this is what they're doing. So right now, the entire Middle East is in a much worse position, strategically uh, considering Iran and its nuclear program, than it was with the JCPOA, the agreement with Iran signed by the Obama administrations and other countries. And they have broke free enriching. And now when they are coming to the table with the Biden administration, they have already facts on the ground and when I mean on the ground, I mean inside the ground with, uh, you know, underneath bunkers in which they're enriching like they've never enriched before, including before the JCPOA, before that agreement. And that means that this gives them credence when they go into that, these negotiations. Mm. So these guys, Palestinians, Iranians, and not only these guys, they didn't bet on Trump. Russia did bet on Trump. And you saw mm. the way that Putin reacted when Biden was elected, he was probably waiting for the last vote to be counted in Georgia. <laughs> and, you know, before he would, you know, issue a declaration of, you know, congratulating Biden. He called for a recount. <laughs> so um, he was the last man standing on the Trump camp, you know, maybe, I don't mm -hmm. know, maybe him and Ted Cruz. was probably. 
the sense the sense that I'm getting from this Nadav is that the next few weeks, months, years are going to be incredibly critical for the U.S. if if it's going to be able to regain some sort of standing in in the international sphere. Do you think it can, given the loss of leverage, given the fact that the world sees how fragile the U.S. is, and given the fact uh, how also changeable how the, the, the fact knowing that in four years the moods can change and somebody can sweep in and change the direction entirely is there a chance of us even establishing a, 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 a u.s centric hegemony again i think that there is no organizing idea for an american-centric world anymore mm. and i think the poll i brought earlier signals that and it's very worrying for me because i i don't live in new york i live on The outskirts of the American Empire and I enjoy the prosperity and the security that American Empire brings with it and I also still think that America is the most benevolent empire that the world has seen and uh, and still it spreads liberal values not, like no other great power in history uh, so I, I am I I am still uh, pro-american even after four years of, of Donald Trump Uh, to your question, I, I think that America is going to be very much possessed with its own demons in the next two years. And it's going to be much more difficult than it might seem in the beginning, mainly because also the pandemic is going to turn, is taking a turn right now, which we cannot predict its meaning. Uh, there are many things that are operating and some of them are not optimistic at all. Uh, and we, you know, I remember when this whole thing started, I read a really smart piece in an MIT publication of some sort online, basically saying our life is going to change for at least a year and a half. We're not going to have restaurants. We're not going to have culture. We're going to be in and out of lockdowns. And that was before, I think, before anyone died in the U.S. from COVID-19. And I just said to myself, I'm not willing to read that. I don't care, you know, if this guy is right. I'm not going to even discuss this. I'm not going to prepare my audience to this. This mm -hmm. is too terrible to talk about. And here we are a year afterwards. And uh, that person, I don't remember who wrote it. I should credit him, but he was right. Uh, I, now that we, we are in it for a year, we, we need to see stuff for what they are. Uh, I talk with scientists all the time. This is my work now. And uh, the guys studying evolution are not too optimistic about what's going to happen. It's the first time that we are seeing this kind of disease spreading uh, with so many people around. So, so many mutations are going to occur. And also we have something that nobody discusses thoroughly yet, which is uh, populations of people with... Uh, reduced immunity uh, or deficient immunity, which at the, at the past, at these points in our evolution, we didn't, they, they, they couldn't live. They couldn't, you know, survive anyway. And, and they also serve as a sort of um, a pool for, for more mutations happening. People kept alive purely by uh, modern medicine, basically. Yeah, by, by the achievements of, of, of modern, you know, healthcare and medicine. And, and that means that sometimes the, the virus can play with them hide and seek uh, in the body for, for a really long time, developing uh, its resistance to antibodies, then spreading. This is one of the, the theories about the way the, the British variant was born. And it's not necessarily so, of course, because when so many people get infected, there is such, such you know, so many possibilities for mutations. And it's not my field. I'm not an expert. I'm just quoting what, uh, you know, evolutionary and immunologists and the people and virologists that I speak with are saying. And all of, all of these options, and of course, there is the option that uh, the vaccine will be efficient against most, if not all, and we'll have our life back by the summer. So it's just a pregnant moment, which is usually an expression I don't use. <laughs> But it's such a pregnant moment, really, truly, that in a few weeks' time, we'll know it. And what's interesting is that we'll know it first, probably, in my country, because we have um, 40% of the population that gets COVID-19 right now gets the British variant, 
which is more than many other countries on the one hand. And also we have 80% of 60 plus year old, which are vaccinated. So, you know, (laughs) it's either going to work and we'll know in two weeks. It's not the US. It will take uh, you guys there forever, at least a year to know. But you have us to understand if it's going to work. Because, as the vaccine skeptics of Israel say, you are the lab rats for the rest of the world. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly the type of quotes or descriptions that get, get our anti-vaxxers really agitated online. <laughs> uh, now, uh, there's a, a big part in your book about populism that we didn't discuss fully, except for the, the fall of Trump. And I'm wondering how much, you, if you're paying attention to what... The, the global populist movement looks like after Trump. You said that the Bolsonaro and Netanyahu are still here to stay. Did they, did, was the, the shift in the U.S. taken as a hit for them or, or had no effect at all, as far as you can tell? First of all, it, it, it is a hit for them. I, I should remind our listeners that Netanyahu ran an election on a slogan that showed him and Trump together under the banner that said, a league of their own. Uh, so we actually ran this as an election motto that he and Trump are the same. So of course it's a hit, but you know, it's local politics and Trump uh, is still popular. So as long as he's, he's popular, either in Russia or in Israel, it doesn't matter that he lost. It, it matters only for liberals to say, hey, he lost. But the point of my book is to say that sometimes when we talk about populism, we actually mean nationalism, and we don't use the term. And I think what American media, to an extent, did in recent years is instead of seeing Trump for what he was and what he defined himself to be, which is a nationalist, and that's the only ism he used, a nationalist, they rather, because of politically correctness, because they didn't want to, I don't know, uh, alienate Readers, I don't know. They define him as a populist. I didn't think he's a populist. I explained thoroughly in the book why he's a nationalist. I don't think that Netanyahu is a populist either. I also think he's a sort of a nationalist. And Bolsonaro is definitely a nationalist. And and so is Viktor Orban. Uh, and sometimes they use populist notions because nationalists do that. But when populism meets nationalism, and that's the point I make in the book, Nationalism always triumphs. It doesn't, it kills the host. It kills the host. The host might be populism, but nationalism, populism deals all the time with questions about hierarchies in society. It maintains that we are the people and the people are not in control. Uh, nationalism is overpossessed with the question who should be in the group and who should be outside of the group. And it's a sea change difference between them. And when you look at these leaders, did they change anything about hierarchy of structure in their society between up and down, between the people and the elites? They didn't change a damn thing, you know, not with Wall Street, not even with academia. They didn't try even to to have statues made or laws changed. They just used that for their nationalism creed. And this is where they really did things. This is where Trump did things, you know, banning Muslims, building the wall. And that showed that he's a nationalist. And this, not only this isn't gone, but with COVID-19, they think that it's going to grow stronger and stronger. We're going to close down in the next few weeks. Airports are going to close. And this time they're going to close in a way that we've never seen before. The Ben-Gurion Airport is closing. That's our oxygen to the world as far as we're concerned. We're closing it tomorrow. The government is closing it tomorrow. So we're, we're in for a ride in the next two or three months. But the good thing about that ride is that we know. In a couple of months, we'll know. And if it's not going to work, our strategy right now, which is basically vaccinations and lockdowns, if it's not going to work, we, we need to you know, change completely. But on, in the meantime... You know, nationalists and racists and anti-vexers and all the rest, they're going to have a field day and they're going to enjoy this. Maybe not in the U.S. in the next six months or so. Maybe you guys are going to give, you know, Biden a chance. And I think you will. This is the tradition of America. 
Uh, no, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> they didn't even give him a chance the day uh, after, for two months after he was elected. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I hope so. Uh, but in other places, you know, we didn't have that restart. We didn't have that restart. Nadav, always fascinating. Yeah, thank you so much. We didn't get to talk about the elections um, in Israel, but maybe next time. Again, I recommend people go buy your book. And thank you. It's always a pleasure. Vanessa, Adam, thank you so much. It, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.sobstack.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. We are also at UncertainPod on the social media. Come argue with us, tell your friends and enemies, and give us a five-star review on Apple. And until next time, stay sane.